This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have Garrett Martin, a scholar who focuses on the European Union and transatlantic relations to talk about what happened with the blockbuster election in the United Kingdom this past week. What does this mean for Brexit? I'll also talk about how Boris Johnson most definitely has parallels to Donald Trump and these implications for the American election next year. And now, the Nexus. Garrett Martin is a professor at the School of International Service and co-director with Professor Michelle Egan of the new Transatlantic Policy Center at American University. He is the author of General de Gaulle's Cold War, Challenging American Hegemony, 1963-68, to and focuses in particular on security, U.S. foreign policy, NATO, European foreign policy and defense, the European Union, France, and the U.K. Garrett Martin, welcome to the Nexus. Welcome. Thank you for having me on, Art. Let's talk about the U.K. This past week, the voters there went to the polls and resoundingly supported incumbent Prime Minister Boris Johnson's election bid. For those of us listening who might be tempted to equate the way the election was done in the UK with the way it is done in the US, can you explain why the coalition and number of parliamentary seats are different from here? Sure. Uh, so I think in a sense, you, you, one easy way to try and equate uh, or to, to better understand the UK system is to imagine as if it was only an election for the House of Representatives. So you essentially have in the UK 650 seats that are at play. So it's 650 mini races, and they have a first-past-the-post system. So there is only one winner per constituency. So I think one of the, the, the difficulties in election of that kind is, you know, you have the general polls that we saw, but it doesn't necessarily always translate well into the number of seats. Got it. Okay. And... um Based on polling prior to the election, was this election a surprise? The results were not necessarily a surprise. I mean, certainly for most of the campaign, the common trend was showing that the, that the Conservative Party had somewhere in the vicinity of a double-digit lead. What was a little surprising is in the closing days of the race, a number of polls were suggesting that maybe there was a tightening of the race. So there was a, a sense that maybe, quite possibly, we would get a repeat of what happened in 2017 when the then uh, Prime Minister Theresa May started with an enormous lead and then it kept narrowing and narrowing until it ended up with a very inconclusive result and the Conservatives actually uh, you know, not getting an outright majority. So in a sense, the results that we saw um, on December 12th, we're more at the higher end of the expectations of how well the conservatives would do. Some of the elements that were certainly interesting is that there was a large drive to register new voters uh, by the deadline of November 26. So there was a thought that if there was a higher turnout, and that especially a higher turnout amongst younger voters, that that would end up helping the Labour Party. But actually, the turnout uh, on December 12th was a little bit lower than two years ago. It was only 67% as opposed to 68%. So hmm. I think that was probably also a crucial factor in the scope and size of the Conservative Party uh, victory. 
So what, so is that the reason I, I just never could understand why there's such a disparity between the way people thought of Theresa May and the way they're thinking of Boris Johnson in this past week. Uh, is, is it that in terms of turnout or is there something about Johnson that that's more appealing? Well, I think Boris Johnson is a bit like Marmite. Uh, if you're familiar with sort of Australian spread, it's um, it does he doesn't leave people indifferent. He either <laughs> has some people who really find him endearing, who really are amused by him, and others who are outright repelled by him and who find him to be very dishonest. But he's certainly, uh, I think, a more a, a more seasoned campaigner than Theresa May, who was always a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, when it when it came to canvassing, when it came to interacting with the voters, so I think that played a role. Secondly, I think it's also very it was very much an election of unpopular leaders. I just think Boris Johnson was less unpopular or less disliked than his main rival Jeremy Corbyn, who had very high degrees of unfavorable ratings amongst the British public. So I think it's also that I think ultimately which helped Boris Johnson. He was simply less unpopular than his major rival, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, you probably aren't going to feel this bluntly, but I mean, to me, Jeremy Corbyn appears to be something of a joke from my vantage point. Am I wrong about that? Well, if it's, if it's a joke, it's probably a bitter one for many of the Labour supporters. <laughs> I, I think what's difficult is... I mean, he was in some respects in a, in a difficult position. So I think it's also fair that any Labour leader would have faced this, this fundamental problem, which is if you go back to 2016 and the referendum, uh, you had a large number of traditional Labour voters, so the more working class blue collar voters, especially in the north of, of England, uh, which voted to leave. But at the same time, you had another part of the coalition of Labour, the more urban, well-educated, especially around London and the suburbs, who were very enthusiastic Remainers. So that was always, I think, going to be a challenge, is how do you keep together that coalition, considering how divided they were over the fundamental question of Brexit, which was very much, unsurprisingly, at the center of this campaign. So I think that was always going to be difficult for any leader. But of course, Jeremy Corbyn did not help as well, uh, whether over the issue of insufficiently condemning anti-Semitism in the Labour Party or some of his positions being quite radical on the economic front, that certainly didn't help either. Right, right. No, that's that's kind of the, uh, I, I feel that those two issues, the the economy and the, um, the anti-Semitism really blew up in his face towards the uh, the end of this campaign. But you did touch upon the referendum and Brexit. And I wanted to get into that a bit. I mean, what does this mean for Brexit now? It seems like this has been dragging on forever, or at least since 2016. But now there sounds like there is truly a hard deadline now. Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right about the point of it has been a seemingly never-ending saga. I mean, if uh, Brexit was uh, in college, it would be in its senior year, just to give you a bit of a sense of how long it's taken. <laughs> so I think there's a couple of elements to keep in mind. In terms of the immediate breaking away from the EU, yes, we do now have clarity. I think this election, that was one of the key elements. What Would the election be able to break the deadlock? 
the inability to come up with a meaningful majority in Parliament for any solution. So now that Boris Johnson has not only a majority, but a large majority, he can also protect himself from if there's any defection within his own party. So I think that's crucial. So in all likelihood, I think next week there will be a vote on the withdrawal agreement. Uh, it will pass. It will then move to the European Parliament and then to the member states. But I don't anticipate any major problems there. So the UK will be out of the EU no later than the 31st of January 2020. However, and again, if you're using a sort of a divorce metaphor, which is convenient, this is just a separation. Now they have to, to work out with the EU all the terms of the future relationship. And those are likely to be very difficult, especially over issues like trade. What kind of trading relationship will the EU and the UK have moving forward? And I can anticipate that it will be it will be rather complex, much like any of those trade agreements and trade negotiations. Um, there's the scope of these arrangements, the scope of those debates, the number of sectors that are affected, uh, key interests that each member state of the EU want to ensure. Um, I think that's going to make it you know, far more difficult than, than the dynamics we've seen in the last few years. Now, and we're also once again up against a deadline. Now, normally, had there not been all of those delays, the initial exit date for the UK was in March 2019. The right. idea was that then there would be a little under two years for a so-called transition period where the EU and the UK could work out those, those terms of the future relationship. But now that timeline has been really shortened, and it's only 11 months left. And so the idea that a deal could be made in 11 months seems rather unlikely in my view. And, and for for those who know Brexit in concept, but not some of the particulars, can you name just a few of the, the very obvious things that are going to happen to the UK and their citizens once they're out of the the union? Yes, of course. I mean, I think one of the key elements, for instance, is is this idea of if you are a a member state of the EU, your citizens have freedom of movement and also freedom to work. So if you were you know, a citizen of the UK, you could easily get residence and work in any of the other 27 member states. That's going to have to change. Uh, also, depending on uh, the trade agreement that is worked out, uh, it's going to create some friction. You know, It's going to be harder to trade goods, you know, between the UK and its neighbors. I mean, I can give you a concrete example. Uh, imagine if you are selling flowers in one of the major markets in London. You're expecting these flowers often come from the Netherlands. Okay, mm -hmm. So you're expecting that these flowers are able to be rapidly delivered by trucks or lorries, that they can cross the channel and arrive still fresh. If you start putting greater customs checks or greater regulation checks, that will slow down and create soft choke points. The odds are that your flowers might not be fresh by the time they arrive at the London market. So being out of the, of the single market is going to create some business challenges for the UK. Yeah. I mean, and I guess that goes to the, the idea of, though, looking at the results from the past week Obviously, people are okay with Brexit, at least 
many of the members of the United Kingdom are. Uh, is Brexit actually that bad? I mean, what do the detractors against bra- Brexit see that an overwhelming amount of British not see? Well, I think, again, I think it's important to go back to 2016 because, in a sense, the choice that was offered in a referendum was very much a binary choice, which was, you know, we either want to stay or leave. But of course, uh, it's not that simple. Uh, even if you choose to leave, then there are a variety of types of relationships that you could have between the UK and the EU afterwards. So I think that's one element here that wasn't very clear. Secondly, I think there wasn't during the campaign really a discussion of the trade-offs. I think it's perfectly fine to want to leave the EU, but I think you have to be aware that if you do so, there are going to be costs. There are going to be some changes. There are going to be some changes in terms of the terms of trade. So I think that was not something that was really discussed. I think the Leave campaign essentially suggested that the UK could have its cake and eat it too, that they could continue to enjoy some of the great benefits of being a member of the club, especially of trade, without having paying any of the costs. And I find that to be highly unlikely. So I think that's going to be an element. Uh, but you know, also one issue that I think really became apparent um, in the campaign three years ago is the extent to which some of the real benefits of the EU, you know, that's all freedom of travel, that freedom of work, are not necessarily reachable for all members of the UK. Uh, there was a clear connection between, for instance, your level of education and whether you were likely to support, remain, or leave. You know, if you don't have, you know, a university college degree, you're less likely to be able to take advantage of those sort of work opportunities and being able to be hired and work and, and mobile and work in another part of the EU. So I think that was very much, I think, something that came across quite clearly. There were a couple of good predictors of how people voted in 2016. Certainly age was one of them, but also uh, your level of education. Right. And... um do you think, as of now, I mean, based on the the results and what, it, is there anything that's going to stop Brexit? Or is it is that absolutely going to be a, a factor in the next year? I, I think, no, I think that it's highly unlikely that anything's going to change, that anything's going to stop at least that phase. Um, again, uh, the big challenge now is what happens, in my view, what happens afterwards. And I would also you know, widen the discussion beyond simply Brexit. Uh, what was interesting is if you looked at the campaign, the main foreign policy discussions revolved around Brexit. But you also have to think of the fact that the UK is leaving this club that it was mm-hmm. a member of for 46 years. Right. It gave it a certain identity on the world stage. Okay, It was part of a foreign policy network with all of its other members of the EU. But now, without that cover, what kind of a role does you know the UK imagine uh, it's going to take? And, and in my view, it's going to be forced into some very difficult choices. I'm going to take two examples, I think, to hopefully make that a little bit more, a little clearer. Mm-hmm. But let's start, for instance, over Iran. Uh, the United States and the EU have been very much at odds over what to do with Iran and over the Iran nuclear deal. The UK is still 
you know, working along with its European allies to preserve, for the moment, the Iran nuclear deal, the so-called JCPOA. But what happens, you know, moving forward? Will the UK be tempted in order to ingratiate itself with the Trump administration or his successor and decide to leave the nuclear deal in order to maybe facilitate this idea of, of signing a trade agreement with the United States? But if they do so, they are going to profoundly anger their European allies. But if they stay in the JCPOA, they're not going to, you know, give themselves any favors with the Trump administration either. Uh, they're going to face similar challenges over China. The United States has been really pressuring its European allies, including the UK, to ban Huawei from taking part in the building of 5G networks. Uh, the UK, in a post-Brexit situation, is very keen to sign new trade agreements and to turn itself into a big hub for foreign investment. But if it decides to side with the United States on Huawei, there are going to be some difficult repercussions with China. So I think in many respects, the UK is going to have to make very difficult choices about where it wants to go and how it wants to engage with the other major powers of the world. So one thing I'm really wondering is, um, would Scotland and Northern Ireland really leave the UK? It's a, that's a, you know, it's a major question. I think, you know, there's been concerns in the last few years that Brexit could accelerate the disintegration of the United Kingdom. I mean, the United Kingdom, it's not always clearly understood, is essentially made of these four nations, which is, you know, England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Uh, again, you know, Brexit was very polarizing, but the referendum in 2016 was further polarizing in the sense that two of those four nations, Northern Ireland and Scotland, voted to remain, while Wales and England voted to leave. So already, I think that created major tensions. And so I think this, Scotland has been very frustrated by the possibility that the UK would leave the EU, and now that looks even more feasible. And if we look at the results of the election on December 12th last week, it's also very clear that the Scottish Nationalist Party nearly had a clean sweep of all the seats in Scotland. They won 48 out of 59 seats. And they have been very much, you know, from the get-go, wanting to put back the question of a second Scottish referendum on the table. Uh, I presume that Boris, Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party would not accept holding a second referendum. But I think that is a situation that is not going to be resolved anytime soon. So it's certainly not impossible. Uh, in the question of Ireland, yes, and, and Northern Ireland, I think that is going to be a significant problem. Essentially, Boris Johnson has thrown Northern Ireland and the Unionists under the bus. Uh, we now essentially have a dividing line when it comes to customs and regulations between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Uh, will that accelerate the prospects uh, of a possible Irish reunification, that's certainly not impossible. I don't anticipate that happening within the next two or three years, but within the next 10 years, I think that's certainly not out of the question. Hmm. That is, that's a major development. Well, I mean, in terms of global trade, we're seeing a pullback with the Trump administration here, especially in relations with China. And now you have the Brexit situation. Can the world really return from the globalization of the last 40 years? Well, that's, 
you know, that is a, that is a very important and very tricky question. Uh, we are certainly seeing uh, a greater amount of protectionism. We're certainly seeing greater reticence towards uh, trade agreements. I think in part that comes from the reactions of public opinion. Uh, you know, we have seen in the United States during the 2016 campaign that trade was one of these issues that got a lot of traction for Trump, that certainly there were constituencies that were traditionally uh, Democratic voters who supported the Trump administration, I think partly because of, of issues of trade. Uh, we've seen that a little bit too, I think, in the UK, where some of the more traditional labor constituencies, I think, have um, sided with the conservatives. Uh, and I think in particular, if we are moving into an era of great power competition, uh, you know, I, I don't see that being a very good development for the trade, for the world's of trade patterns in the coming years. We've also seen in recently that the Trump administration has also been trying to gut or to limit the power of the WTO. So I, I don't see in the next few years that trend being reversed, whether is this a permanent and mortal blow to the more open trading system that we've seen since World War II, that's still too early to say. But certainly we are at least moving in a more protectionist uh, path, in my view. And, you know, one thing that I'm just curious about is, and I think that this is a metaphor for the United States as well, and this kind of goes with with polling and the media and, and so forth. Is there a sharp divide between London and the media there and the will of the rest of that country? We keep hearing how awful Brexit is, but as we've touched upon, obviously people, more people than in 2016, appear to want it now. And I think about our country with the, you know, the... The Eastern media and the, 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 what we hear about coastal, um, elites and all of that saying a certain thing. And then you find, um, in a lot of the so-called heartland in this United States that people are thinking a very different thing. It, 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 are those patterns the same in, in the United Kingdom? I wouldn't say they're exactly the same. I, I think one caveat or one correction I would make is I'm not sure really th the needle has moved a lot since 2016. In a sense, um, yes, you know, it was a resounding victory for, for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, and he was able to keep together a lot of the Leave voters. But in a sense, the Remainers were simply fragmented between three parties. They were mainly voted either for the Scottish Nationalists, the Liberal Democrats, or Labour. But if you add them all together, you know, the percentage that voted in 2016 hasn't dramatically, dramatically changed. The joke that some people have made is that the only shift we've seen is because some older voters have died and some new voters are now of age to be able to vote. But I don't think there's been significant movement uh, otherwise. In terms of your, your second question, I think the dynamics are a little bit different. Um, Johnson did follow a bit of a populist argument, which was he was very much campaigning for the people versus the parliament. He was accusing the parliament of having, of trying to thwart the will of the people as expressed in the 2016 referendum. So I think that was more of the, the line taken than necessarily an anti-media approach. 
but they are nonetheless, of course, regional differences in the UK. Uh, specifically, when it comes to, I think, in, 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 and this is a very general dynamic that's true in the United States and also true in other parts of Western Europe, is that it's much more of an urban, uh, urban versus rural divide. Uh, you know, the areas that are more rural or that are former industrial areas in the north of England, they have suffered some of the same dynamics or economic challenges that we saw in the Rust Belt in the United States or that we see in parts of northern France, areas that have struggled to recover and to adapt. Uh, it's interesting areas also, if we look at the impact of the financial crisis in 2010, uh, there's a real regional inequality in terms of what areas bounce back quicker than others. Uh, the big cities, the big areas around London have recovered a lot faster than other parts of the UK. And I think that has created resentment and tension. Right, right. Um, this is almost kind of a, uh, I don't want to say comical aside or anything, a lighter aside, I should say, but do you they're supposed to be so um, nonpartisan and nonpolitical. In your viewing, have, have the royal family ever weighed in on Brexit and their feelings about the European Union, or have they stayed completely tight-lipped about it? No, they, they've remained very tight-lipped about this. At times, I think, if I remember in 2016, there were attempts by some of the, the tabloid press, kind of the more... Uh, popular press in the UK to suggest that the royals were, were siding one way or another, but they, they've been very careful to do so, to avoid, um, you know, getting involved in the fray. I think that's been something that was very clear. That The only exception I can think about was uh, over the Scottish referendum of 2014, however. This came out recently when uh, David Cameron, who was the UK Prime Minister from 2010 to 2016, and just before the referendum, just wrote his memoirs where he said that he spoke to the Queen just before the Scottish independence referendum and was trying to encourage her to, to send a subtle signal to Scottish voters that it would be better to preserve the union. But aside from that, I think the, the royal family has been very careful not to get involved, specifically at a time when you know, your listeners might know this or might not know this, but uh, Prince Andrew has been, of course, very much tied to the Jeffrey Epstein case, and the royal family has its own uh, challenges. I think the idea of getting involved in politics uh, would not be one that they would really look forward to. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think everybody knows about that at this point, which is uh, which is kind of sad, but but also intriguing in its in its own way. Um, well, uh, are there any predictions that you have or assessments that we haven't gone over that I might be missing? Oh, well, you know, I'm notoriously bad at predictions, and I feel they always come back to bite me in the in the dairy air. So I'm, you know, I'm always a bit wary of making those. Uh, I think you know the number. Of, I would emphasize going back to the the question about the future of Ireland. It, it's still interesting to see that. Um, the unionists have won fewer seats for the first time, I believe, in, in ages than the more sort of nationalist parties in, in Northern Ireland. So again, if that's a forerunner of the fact that the Irish reunification question might be on the table, that, that's certainly interesting. Um, 
uh, you know, beyond that, I think the prediction, it's hard to make predictions because you could see Boris Johnson's large majority going two ways when it comes to negotiations with the EU, which will be the, the most pressing challenge for him. On the one hand, he could be free to make compromises and concessions because he wouldn't be dependent on a, on a razor-thin majority. And I think Boris Johnson, if anything, is pragmatic. Uh, he has very much changed his colors and his stripes over the years, depending on what position and who he was speaking to. So you could very much imagine him taking a more centrist, moderate turn. Or conversely, he could feel emboldened by his large majority and basically play hardball with the EU. And that could set us up for some very nasty and difficult negotiations moving forward. Which Boris Johnson will show up is unclear, but I I think that's something to keep an eye on. Mm, Absolutely. Lots to... Lots to look at in the, in the next year and decade, which we're about to enter. Um, you can find Garrett Martin appearing on NPR, the BBC, CNN, Voice of America, USA Today, and many other great outlets. Thank you so much for joining me in the Nexus. Thank you, Art. It was my pleasure. And we will be right back. There are many, many driving questions regarding the election in Britain this week. Will this be a precursor to what happens in the U.S. elections next year? Will Britain go over the cliff economically? Is the entire European Union going to fall apart? What about the United Kingdom itself? How could such a buffoon like Boris Johnson win such a commanding victory? I'm constantly wondering if we in the United States are eternally underestimating President Trump and the appeal of a down-and-dirty populist leader. Voting for Trump at this point is like rooting for the bad guy on TV. He's Walter White. He's also Tony Soprano. And I think we in the reality-based good guy world fail to understand why the bad guy is so enticing. Boris Johnson is a bad guy in his own way. Not as corrupt as Trump, as far as we know, but he's caused outrage by making fun of gay men, single mothers, and black people. Like Trump, he simply doesn't care to cater to British beyond his base. Johnson is a buffoon, but he has that swagger that many like about Trump. I look at Donald Trump, I realize, in a way that 43% of the country doesn't see or want to see. The same could be said about Johnson. So, when I think of Brexit, my impulse is that this is going to destroy Britain and cause severe damage to jobs in the private sector, likely ushering in an era of austerity as Britain tries to cope with fewer economic opportunities all of a sudden. But then again, that's my thinking. Maybe the idea of having fewer immigrants coming from the rest of the European Union is somehow better for most British, and I'm just out of touch. And it may be overblown that Britain will collapse because of leaving the EU. Could be that they will lose some ground economically, but maybe they will bounce back with better trade agreements. We touched upon it in the interview with Garrett Martin, but I've read reports that Queen Elizabeth asked dinner guests not too long ago for them to give her three reasons Britain should stay with Europe. The implication being that she was skeptical of remaining in the EU herself. She's been the monarch for 67 years. Perhaps she knows something more than people like me or the so-called experts know. The point here is, as much as the polls say Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are going to beat Donald Trump 
in 2020, we may just be in an age where noble, normal politicians aren't what the majority want. And by majority, I mean a majority in the electoral college. We're angry. We don't care about looking ahead at economic trends. Things seem okay now. And finally, we have someone talking about those, quote, under the skin issues no one talked about before. The others who are getting over on us and ahead of us. That's what it's all about. That's the heart of the matter. It may not be right, but it probably is reality. To end on an optimistic note, however, history goes in cycles, and one day this ugly age will likely be seen for what it is, when we yielded to our negative impulses and yielded to fear. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We'll see you next time and be well. Thank you.